invite you to turn to the Song of Solomon. I'll be preaching from that book once again. We continue our sermon series there. I remind you that though there are different views about how the Song of Solomon should be interpreted, we're looking at it in the way that the great majority of Bible-believing Jews, even before Christ came, and Christians until about the last century and a half, have understood it. And that is as an allegory that beautifully sets forth the relationship of Jesus Christ as a bridegroom with his church, his bride. As such, we understand the bride to be one bride who is made up of many different members. So she's a complex bride. When she's presented in Revelation at the end, uh, coming down from, from heaven to adorn for her husband, John has to go up on a mountain so he can see all of her. So she's either a very, very big lady or she's made up of many people. And so, for example, in today's sermon where it's entitled The Fairest Among Women, from chapter 5, verse 9, the woman in view is the entire church, which is referred to repeatedly in the Bible as the wife and the bride of Christ. It's very marvelous to think that the Son of God became human flesh in order that he might redeem his bride and that he might take her into his father's house to forever live with him as his bride in his father's house for all eternity. God the Father sent him with this purpose, and he gave him a great multitude of people that cannot be numbered from this sinful fallen world to redeem, that they might be his holy bride. He went to the cross to pay for our sins, and from the beginning, he has been gathering us by sending his Holy Spirit to transform us so that we will obey him his call of the gospel, when it goes out, his authorization, he sends out the gospel into the world and a call to repent, turn from our old way, our whole way of life, our rebellion, and to come to him to be our Lord and Savior, to pardon us from our sin and to be a husband to us who takes care of us and who provides for us and who perfects us. Back in chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon, we saw how much he delights in us as his bride. The chapter begins with him saying, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. And it goes on in praise of us. He ends up describing her in that chapter like a garden that brings forth beautiful fruit that he delights in and that he loves to come into his garden and partake of the fruit. And that fruit is, of course, her love and devotion to him primarily, the fruit of the Spirit that that she brings forth now that she is planted for him. But she describes in the section we're in now in chapter 5, she describes this ugly scene beginning in chapter 5, verse 2, where she's half asleep, spiritually slumbering. Now, this is disturbingly familiar to us is those who are the bride of Christ, who have a relationship with him as our husband, that we are sluggish about devoting ourselves to him, about worshiping him, about pleasing him, about being fruitful to him. We sometimes don't want the trouble of being intimate with Christ. We would rather keep a bit of a distance, not really have to deal with the sin that's in our life, just to kind of overlook, you know, the little things, not talking about the big, just kind of just kind of in a slumbering, half, half-hearted kind of approach toward him. Or maybe a, something that we know that we should be doing, that we're just kind of like, eh, I'm, I don't really care about being near to him. We want him to stay at a little bit of a distance. We don't want to be intimate with him. The scene is of him knocking at the door at night, excluded from the bride that he dearly loves as one out in the night. Though he speaks to her most tenderly, she rebuffs him. How can you ask me to arise when I've already taken off my robe, when I've already washed my feet? Like, how can you do this? Like, she, she turns it to complain at him. But then as we've seen, he reaches out to her the way he does. We, we know this from experience with his powerful, omnipotent hand. 
and he touches her beside her door, the door that she shut up against him. This is in chapter 5 and verse 4. It's a powerful, this is, refers to the powerful working of the Spirit by which He restores us when we have grown cold. It is His almighty transforming power. How she is changed. Now you know this by experience as a believer. You know how this is. When He touches you with His grace and power, when you are all sluggish, and then you're awakened and you're alert. Sometimes it happens very powerfully in, an, in a very quick way. Now her heart yearns for him. She wants to go to him. She rises from her bed. There's no more slumbering in the bed now and rises to go and open to him. And she opens to him, 5-6, with delighted expectation. But he is gone. He's deserted her. He's nowhere to be found. And last week I showed you that that was a disturbing thing to read. He's gone. This is what we looked at. She must learn, we, the bride, must learn that we can't just drop him and take him up again whenever we please. He is our Lord and husband. We must feel the wrong of our cold repulsion of him so that we will repent and we will know that this is not acceptable behavior. Nevertheless, his gracious touch has truly changed her completely from that slumber that she was in. She does not then, when he is not to be found, when she opens the door and he's deserted her, she doesn't say, oh, I might as well go back to bed. He's not here anyway. And she goes back to bed. No, not at all. She goes out into the night looking for him, earnestly seeking him and crying out to him, calling to him. Of course, that would be diligently going into the word and prayer and looking for communion with him. The watchmen of the city find her. They're the leaders in the church. And they don't understand. They see her separated from him. They know that she's been in this cold, lethargic state. And they chasten her and they count her as a loose woman. What is she doing out in the night roaming around like this? And they take away her veil. In other words, the, the, the testimony that she has is they... they bring discipline they wound her as it were but this doesn't stop her doesn't stop her at all from searching for him we are we left off with her pleading after that experience with the watchman pleading with the daughters of jerusalem and we've seen the daughters of jerusalem to be the the ordinary members of the church just any of the members of the church even perhaps young disciples but any of them really in verse 8 she says I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. We looked at that last week too. Being lovesick is like being homesick. It's not when you hate home, it's when you love home and you wish you could be at home. When you're lovesick, you love love. You want, she wanted to be with him and she was sick because she was distanced from him. It's obvious that she can't go on. She refuses to go on like this without him. His touch has delivered her fully from that sluggishness. So now she relentlessly seeks him. And that's where we left her last week, bringing that question to them and, or char that charge to them, sorry. And today we pick up with the response of these daughters of Jerusalem, which is recorded in verse 9. This is the only verse we're going, to cover, we're going to cover today. I was originally thinking of going all the way to 6-3, believe it or not, and then I shortened it up quite a bit, and then I ended up going with just verse 9. I think there's plenty for us to think about from this verse. So I'll begin today's scripture reading with chapter 5 and verse 8 to get a little bit of context with the, the charge that she gives them, and then we'll go on and read to 6-3. So here is the Word of God, the Holy Word of God, so receive this reading as the very Word of God. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 8. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. Then they say, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. 
His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Then they say, where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? My beloved, she says, has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. Now I highlight our text in verse 9, the response of the daughters of Jerusalem to the bride's earnest request for prayer, for intercession What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? First, you might suppose that they're asking that question in kind of a bit of a scornful way. Like, what's the big deal about this guy? He's, you know, he deserted you. And like, why are you still out here in the night looking for him? If he deserted you, you know, find another one. But that's not really what they're, they're doing here. If we look, look ahead, as we just did, we read ahead, you can see that they're not asking in that way because in chapter 6, when in verse 1, they tell her that, where did he go? We want to find him too. We want to come and enjoy him with you. And I'll just say as a side note, this is another evidence that this is meant to be taken allegorically. Because if this is a woman with her, her husband, then you don't say, where, and they say, where did he go? And she says, oh, oh, he's here, you know. And they say, oh, we want to come with you. And she oh, great, come and enjoy my husband with me. That, 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 it's, it's obviously an allegory that we're talking about here. The, and it's clear here, though, with these daughters of Jerusalem, then that they are admiring her devotion to him. They're looking at this and they're saying, he must be special. And so then they're asking questions about it. Let's, let's get into this. The devotion of the church to Christ, her bridegroom, is here quite conspicuous to start with, isn't it? The daughters of Jerusalem are struck by that devotion. Keep in mind, again, that they're simply the ordinary members of the church, the saints within the congregation who are themselves part of the bride, this bride of Christ, which though one bride has many different members, okay, they're just part of the, and, and they see here is the church seeking after him. The daughters of Jerusalem have seen the bride's relentless pursuit that I, I summarized for you before, how that she was aroused from her sluggishness and then she was relentless in going after him. She who is reluctant to open to him at first has been touched by his mighty, powerful hand so that her heart now yearns for him. They see the, as she described it, the myrrh that was dripping off of her hands, which is, the we've seen all along the way, the spices and things that are mentioned here, the fruit are precious fruits that we bring forth as Christ's bride by his grace. Principle among those are love for him. And she comes with the myrrh dripping off of her hands, the, the, the things that he delights in, the fruit that he delights in to, to greet him. Of course, we say she found him uh, absent. They see how she opened the door and how she found that he had deserted her and that she doesn't go back to bed. And that impresses them. She went out in the night seeking and calling out to him, searching looking for him. They see how the watchman of the city abused her and how it didn't deter her. She didn't stop and go off in a corner and and, and complain and and turn away from him. She kept seeking him. It didn't matter what anybody did because her focus was on him. God's spirit had changed her. That touch, how how, we see how that they even took away her veil, didn't recognize her sincerity, but she didn't 
she, she went on. She was telling them then, these daughters of Jerusalem, solemnly charging them, maybe you have communion with Him. I don't right now. I'm seeking Him. I'm yearning for Him. If you have communion, if you see Him, then please intercede for me. Tell Him I am lovesick. Let Him know that I want to be with Him. And it's a very good thing to do, isn't it? To ask other people to pray for us. We talked about that last week. So nothing deters her. Not desertion, not his desertion, not the watchman's harsh, harsh treatment, not her pride that might have kept her from owning up to the fact that she had she was distanced from him, that she goes to the daughters of Jerusalem, her fellow church members, and talks to them about this issue. They realize that she's all out utterly committed to this, to finding him. She loves him with a deep, devoted love. They ask her then this question, what makes him so special? Again, in verse 9, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? And then they repeat it again, you see. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you charge us? Repeating the question shows the intensity of their asking. They've been gripped by, by the, the strength of devotion that she has. They want to know what is he all about? A literal translation of the Hebrew of this question is, what is your beloved from a beloved? In other words, Here's a beloved, what makes him stand out from that beloved? That's the idea. What is he from another beloved? For her, the true bride leaving him here at this time is not any kind of option for her. So she's, she's earnest about her quest to find him. If he, they're, they're not so sure. So we'll look at her answer next week when they say, what is your beloved more than another beloved? How she tells of his surpassing excellence. But let's just pause here for a bit and think about this a little bit. Think of some of the ways that we see the church's devotion to Christ, her husband. Outstanding devotion to him. Remember, she's made up of those to begin with who Jesus said, have left all to follow him. She is composed of those who realize that even if he disappoints at times, that she has no other place to go. We've talked about that, haven't we? In John 6, for example, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they want to make him king, and then he says, no, I'm not going to be king like that, Not, not what you're talking about, and they all go away. And he looks to the disciples and says, are you going to go away too? They say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've got no other place to go. There's no thought about leaving him because he didn't do what I wanted. And if you really know Christ, you've left all to follow him. It doesn't matter if he doesn't give you what you wanted. Oh, well, he didn't give me. I wanted to to have someone to marry or I wanted to have this job or I wanted to have whatever. You might be disappointed about that, but it doesn't make you think about, I think I'm going to just... I'm going to go and serve another God. I'm going to, I'm, this isn't working for me. No, because you've come to him as the one who is your, your redeemer from your sin, who has reconciled you to God. She's like Abraham who left his homeland or like Moses who went into the wilderness with the people of God rather than being a prince in Egypt, in the, pal- in, in the palace of Egypt with the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We, we see the church in the world then sometimes severely persecuted. And accepting, as Hebrews would put it, the plundering of her goods for his sake. We see the church devoted to him, leaving father and mother for his sake, leaving their own children or their own parents. And we see her seeking him in sickness and in health, in poverty and in prosperity, for better or for worse, because she's his bride. We see her in the person of Job, who is, of course, part of the bride, proclaiming that though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. See, there's so much we can say about the church's commitment. We see her ardent in her worship through the ages, gathering each Lord's Day for the holy convocation that God has appointed, the assembling of the saints together to to call on his name, to sing his praise, to hear his word, to seek him in prayer, to yield to him with vows and with confessions of faith. We see her faithfully giving of her wealth, her tithes and her offerings 
so that the church can continue from generation to generation. How does the church continue? It's because God's people provide for her. We see her obeying him, even when it costs her everything, submitting to him when it means imprisonment or loss of job. We see her proclaiming his excellence to the nations, going to great efforts to do that, sending missionaries, missionaries going because of their commitment, going to hard places, going to places where they get diseases and where they face all kinds of maybe threats to their life. We see her purging his church of false sons when they become manifest and have to be disciplined from the church. We see her on the other side receiving those who are who have the lowest reputation, those who have, have been in the, the worst offenses and yet repent, welcoming them with open arms. In all these ways, everyone sees how special Christ is in the eyes of his bride, the church. Her members mutually show one another his true worth and they show the world his true worth even while the world mocks them by their dedication and commitment to him that is obvious. Their devotion is never more devotion than he deserves. It is always less. He deserves more than any devotion that anyone has ever given him. The world does not see it that way. The bride sees it as something beautiful. But still, they honor him and they bring glory to his name. You see, even in a world that mocks them, they bring honor in that world to his name a world that is lost and dead in sin and does not honor him at all. They emerge out of the rubble, for he lifts them out with divine power, the rubble of this world, to be a devoted bride to him. His true worshipers, to be his true worshipers and his faithful, obedient servants. She stands out in the world on account of her constant devotion. Though her members waver, Yet there is always a testimony of faithfulness. Sometimes the church is largely apostate. They're all pretty much worshiping Baal. But as the scriptures teach us, there is always a remnant according to election in every age. There are those who are faithfully serving him. that are faithfully devoted to him in those hard and difficult times. It is her devotion to him that makes her the loveliest woman of all. And that's the next thing I want to look at. It is her devotion to him that makes her the loveliest woman of all. The daughters of Jerusalem recognize her surpassing beauty, the surpassing beauty of the church. In our text, verse 9, they address her as the fairest among women. Because of her unrelenting devotion to Jesus, she is the most beautiful bride of all. She is truly the fairest one of all. There are none who compare to her. It's interesting to remember that the daughters of Jerusalem here are actually seeing the beauty of the church of which they themselves are a part. But there's nothing arrogant or vain here about them seeing that beauty. It's really rather simple. They feel deeply themselves how they come short of his glory, of giving him what he deserves, and each member is painfully aware of their own shortcomings. And each sees the failings of the church as a whole in their own age and in other ages. But they also see that all who are devoted to Christ have a beauty that excels in this world because the world has no devotion to Christ. And those who are redeemed have been brought out, have left the world to come and follow him. And though they're not perfect, there is a beauty there that stands out marvelously in the world. So with the psalmist, they say, Psalm 16, 3, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There's all the difference in the world between a disciple of Christ and the bride of Christ and those who are not the part of the true bride of Christ. So they compare them with the world and they say, the next verse, Psalm 16, 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God Their drink offerings of blood, I will not offer. I won't have anything to do with worshiping those other gods, nor take up their names on my lips. The daughters of Jerusalem are right here, aren't they? The bride of Christ, the church, is indeed the fairest one of all. Jesus himself calls her the fairest among women. 
Back in chapter 1, verse 8, he used this very title to describe her. If he thinks his bride is the fairest among women, then indeed she is, whatever anyone else thinks. We have seen recently how highly he praises her. I referred to chapter 4 to you before, verse 1, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Remember what that's about? It's eyes that are just for him, devoted to him. We saw how he went on to explain how delighted he was with even one true look of devotion, one true glimpse of devotion from her. In 4.9, he says, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. He knows that even one tiny spark of devotion in her is the result of his divine saving work for which he poured out his soul to death. He knows that that spark will, by His grace, grow into a lovely flame. It was created by Him. We don't have any sparks in ourselves. People talk about having spark. We don't have any, any true spark of devotion for Him whatsoever until He gives it to us. And He sees that and He knows that that spark is going to become an ardent flame that will burn of passion for Him, that will burn forever and ever. He declares His bride then to be the fairest among women. Nothing is more lovely, indeed, than a woman who is wholly devoted to her husband. Unless jealousy and envy cloud our vision, a woman who ardently loves a worthy man who finds her joy in serving him is lovely beyond compare. God designed marriage to exhibit the relationship that the bride has to her husband, the, the, the bride of Christ has to her husband Christ. And that devotion of the saints to Christ is exhibited in the marriage relationship. And it is beautiful when it is so exhibited. She is fulfilling her role. Whatever the world may say about this in our day, she is beautiful, fulfilling a role. She is lovely in that love and devotion to her husband. And when the marriage in view is that of Christ to the church, then she is exceedingly beautiful. When we're talking about the church in Christ, this is a beauty, the fairest among women. It is the way things are meant to be and always were meant to be between God and His creatures. Christ is the Creator, our husband. He's the one that made all things. And all along the way, we were to be wholly devoted to Him, to be delighted with Him, to be enamored with Him, to be taken up with Him. It's the way things will be when they're beautifully perfected at the end of the, the age. When we go and we see Him and we become like Him, we will become all that we are meant to be, all that we're called to be. How beautiful this is. This is, the, this is what God has promised. How beautiful she is to all. How beautiful she is to Jesus Himself. He Himself has made her beautiful by first loving her. Her love is a responsive love. His forgiveness makes her beautiful. She's no longer loaded with guilt. She's humble and able to confess her sins. She is able to be honest and true. Not like Adam when he sinned and he was not yet forgiven, didn't know the forgiveness of the Lord. And he said, oh, it's the woman you gave me. He could not confess his sin. He could not humble. It's difficult to deal with people who can never acknowledge Be honest about their sin. But she is changed. Her loveliness is because she's forgiven. She can be straightforward about what she was, what she is, and what she's called to be. His promises and her trust in them give her rest in Him. Assurance and hope of future glory that He has promised. He's the Son of God. She's got nothing to fear. Perfect security, perfect hope. She's secure and therefore she's as bold as a lion. And yet at the same time, she's meek like a lamb. His teaching makes her beautiful. He trains her up in the ways of his household, 
beautiful ways of living and loving and, and caring for others and serving. You think about this with, with Solomon and the illustration that's used with him when the Queen of Sheba comes and she says, how blessed are all of your servants because she sees the order and the, the way that they're all living and functioning together in harmony and, and, and blessedness. She learns then to live beautifully. She becomes beautiful because he makes her beautiful. His washing of regeneration removes all of the corruption and felt. He found her in her blood. And He washes her and cleanses her with the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. His sanctifying grace continues to transform her as she goes on and to fit her for glory at the last day. His full acceptance of her as His bride makes her beautiful. She, she is delighted. She's His sister, His spouse. He gives her a joyful sense of belonging. So many people don't have a sense of belonging anywhere. The bride of Christ belongs to Him. He is mine. My beloved is mine and I am His. There's an ownership. There's an there's a, a, a acceptance there How, of one who is so high and excellent, who has come to her and embraced her and taken her in. Like a bride who is thrilled with her husband, she is radiant. She is full of joy to have such an excellent husband who loves her so much. She is full of peace because she's so sure of him. She is full of hope because her future is in his hands. She has his inheritance. She is full of contentment because nothing that the world can offer can compare to her relationship with him. She's full of service because he's worthy of all. She is full of thanksgiving because she knows that he has given his all to redeem her. Above all, though, she is full of love and devotion for him, and that's what makes her lovely. Her love for him and her devotion to him that is seen here is what makes her so beautiful. You know that you've seen this before. Like when there's a wedding and the bride is truly delighted with her husband. And she's thrilled with him as, as, as the wedding goes on. And you see that she, she's radiant with that love and that beauty of one who is, who is delighted to be with him. How much more when it's for Christ? You need to take notice of the beauty of the church. Take notice of the beauty of the bride. Gain an eye to be able to see this beauty. Read your Bible and see her beauty in the lives of the faithful saints. I mentioned before the beauty of Abraham, leaving everything to go and follow the Lord in the land that he did not know, leaving his homeland. And then what did he do at the end? He was willing to offer up his only son, the son of promise, because he trusted God and knew that God was good and that God would raise his son up or do whatever needed to be done. You see the beauty there in Abraham. See the beauty in Moses that we mentioned. He, he left Egypt and the palaces because he had something better. And what was it? He's in the wilderness with a bunch of complaining people for 40 years. And he said, this is way better because I'm with him. That's devotion. That's real devotion. See Peter and John so devoted to Christ that when they were beaten for preaching in his name in Acts 541 they departed from the presence of the council from that beating that they had just received rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name that is beautiful devotion see the apostle paul preaching christ again and again under deprivation persecution insult imprisonment chains stripes beating with rods counting it all as a gift to suffer for his name Read your Bible also and see how the church is praised in the Scripture as a beautiful one. Earlier, we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul speaks of the beauty of the Thessalonian church. He tells how they received the Word of God with much affliction so that their faith was spoken of all over the world. Everybody was talking about it. Look at how devoted they are to this new religion that they have. What is this about, you see? What, what, is they, what do they see in all of this? In Ephesians 2, 19-22, it speaks of us as God's glorious temple. 
2.19, Ephesians 2.19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, a place that is suitable for God to dwell, a place suitable for the holy God to dwell. That is what Christ is forming us into. That is remarkable. This is beauty. And then Peter uses the language of the Old Testament that the Lord used to describe the beauty of the bride. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were ugly darkness and now you're marvelous light who once were not a people, you were estranged from the Lord, not a people not belonging to him, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Read church history. So read the Bible in those two ways I just said, read the church history and see the beautiful devotion of the church of Christ. Fox's book of martyrs tells us of those who suffered persecution because of their love and devotion to Christ. Fair Sunshine, a little book about the covenanters who refused to submit to unbiblical worship and were slaughtered because they would not say that Jesus was not the head of the church on earth, that they wanted them to say that the king was the head of the church on earth, and they refused to say that. And some of them were even tied to a stake and drowned as the tide came up, such things as that. Missionary biographies tell us of those who faithfully poured their lives out for the gospel. But perhaps even more important than than these, gain an eye to see the beauty of the believers that are around you. Believers that are alive today. Those living today. Those that are part of your communion and fellowship. It's a mark of the ungodly to miss this to always criticize and find fault with living believers. If they see John the Baptist, who came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, they say, he has a demon. If the same people see Jesus, who came eating and drinking, they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Say that of Jesus. You need to learn to see the beauty of the people of God around you. You need to be able to say, now there is a beautiful Christian because they are beautiful, because Jesus makes them beautiful. Not that you close your eyes to sin. I'm not talking about that kind of silliness that pretends like we're not sinners. I'm not talking about that at all. If you love your brother, there's going to be times you admonish him and you rebuke him and that sort of thing. But when there is a beautiful Christian that God has changed and that's devoted to the Lord, don't be jealous or threatened by them, someone that stands out so that you feel you have to pull them down and find fault with them because it intimidates you. No, delight in those who are, who, are, who are serving God faithfully. Delight in the work of grace that you see in them and speak of it to them and to others. And that brings us to our last point. Beholding the beauty and devotion of the bride of Christ leads the daughters of Jerusalem to see Christ. When you recognize this beauty and you say, what's got them? What, what are they so uh, attracted to here? You turn your eyes to see what they're attracted to, to look at the one that they love. The question that they ask the bride in our text is a wonderful question. 5.9 again. Seeing the devotion that makes the church the fairest among women, they're drawn to inquire about the object of her devotion. We've seen the question already that they asked twice. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? Surely it would be foolish for them to stop with only looking at the bride, to stop there and not look at the one that she is devoted to, that, that makes her so glad, to, to look with, for their admiration to move from her to him. Like the Holy Spirit, she herself is not at all concerned with drawing attention to herself. Being filled with the Spirit, she wants to draw everyone's attention to Christ. He is as she will soon attest, as we go on in this passage in the future, the fairest of 10,000. She may be the fairest among women, 
But that is only because her husband is the fairest of 10,000, meaning that there is no one to compare to him. We've seen how he changes her. He transforms her. So this question, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women, is a wonderful question that helps everyone. It helps the bride who is asked that question when they come to the bride and say, you know, what is your beloved more than another? It helps her. It gives her an opportunity to speak of the one that she loves. She is very glad to be asked this question because she loves to tell other people about him and why she loves him and what he's done for her so that they might see how wonderful he is and that they might be devoted to him too with her. Come with me and see him. Come and see a man, the, woman, the Samaritan woman said, who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It is also... It also has the benefit of encouraging her as she thinks of all the reasons that he is special to her. You ask her, what makes him stand out? And then she starts to talk about it. And that's what happens in this passage. She starts talking about it, and then she's restored again. Her, her faith is, is rekindled again in her assurance. Her, she's already, you see, been changed so that she's seeking him where she wasn't before. But now, at the end of this, after she recounts who he is, she's refreshed. Second, it helps the daughters of Jerusalem who do the asking of the question. So it helps the one, the bride who is asked, and it helps those who do the asking. When we as members of the body of Christ see the devotion of the church, when we see others who are devoted to him, beautiful, we realize that we ourselves don't know him as well as others. When that happens, we do well not to cower but to go to those who have such great love and ask them to tell us why. What is it that you see in it? What makes Jesus special to you? Why do you live the way you do? Why did you make those decisions you made for Him? Those sacrifices you made. In, in some cases, it may even be those who do not yet know Christ in a saving way who ask this question. Because you see, there's people in the church that maybe they've professed their faith and the elders have judged it to be a credible profession of faith. Maybe it is a credible profession outwardly but they're not really yet regenerate. They haven't really come to him. And so they ask out of true ignorance, what is it about him? What is it? that's so special? And then it's, she begins to talk about it. They begin to listen and they begin to realize who he is. That, wow, so you mean he died on the cross to atone for our sins? That he left heaven to come? And then they begin to understand who he is, you see. And then they, they come into a saving relationship with him. They truly want to know more about him when they ask the question. And the Lord uses the testimony of those who are true believers to show them his worth, his faithfulness, and his saving work so that they come to believe. This question may also be asked by those members whose love for him is just as great as anyone else's. Someone like Job that's called a blameless man or, or Zacharias or somebody like that. They see the devotion of a younger Christian and they're very encouraged when they see that. They see a new Christian taking their first steps for Christ and moving toward him. And they want to know, you know, how did you learn of Christ? How do you see Christ? What do you know of him? What, why is it that you're following him now? And the, the, the new believer begins to talk. They, they ask it to encourage the younger Christian, but they also ask it for their own encouragement and edification. Many times a younger believer not only reminds more mature believer of everything that they already knew, but sometimes they show them something that's fresh and new that they've never seen before. Very often that happens. And then there are those among the visible church who ask this question in scorn, in a mocking way. These are the Esau's or the Judas's, if you will, that are in the church. What is your beloved more than another beloved? Why would you serve him like that? Why would you pour out the, the expensive oil and anoint his feet like that? What, what is the big deal with him? You're wasting, you're being wasteful. You know, how is he any different? If he has deserted you and his watchmen have let you down and abused you, why don't you move on? You know, we thought he was going to come and, and throw out the Romans and he's done no such thing. I've got no reason to follow him anymore. Some of them were saying that may have been Judas's problem in part. They have a root of bitterness. They say, what good is it 
What good is he if following him brings you into the wilderness? You come out of Egypt and you go into the wilderness to suffer and die in the wilderness. What's the point? That's what so many in Israel said, wasn't it? Or Esau, they say, what good is my birthright if I can't get the food that I want right now? What's the point of of serving him if I'm not going to get the things I want? But I say many who start out this way have been marvelously converted. Tertullian was correct when he testified that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are many persecutors who become those who are persecuted for Christ. They persecuted those following Christ, and then they become among the persecutors. Think about the Apostle Paul. He was one who was so opposed and adamant against them, but he kept seeing. He saw Stephen, and he saw different ones, and their, their devotion to this one. And then, at last, he met him. And then Paul was completely changed around. He switched sides. This is how God works. They see the devotion of those they're executing, and it shows them that their Lord, the ones they're executing's Lord, is worthy. Paul joined those that he himself had persecuted. So let me encourage you to ask this question. What is your beloved more than another beloved to each other? It's a good thing to ask each other. You know, not those words, but words like that. Ask people about their walk. Ask them, what did you learn in the word this week? What what has God shown you lately? What, What has he been doing in your life? Ask it especially of those who show great love for Christ. What is it that makes Christ special to you? It will be a great help to you, and it will be a great help to them also to tell, to testify. Ask a young believer to tell you, what are you learning about Christ? You'll hear some fresh, wonderful things. This is how the body edifies itself in love. Recognize that phrase in the Bible? The body that edifies itself in love. That's what the bride does. She edifies herself in love, speaking the things of Christ. We speak to one another about the excellence of Christ. We see in each other the beauty of Christ, and we speak to each other about His glory, His person, His work, His goodness, His love, His promises, His law, His testimonies, His judgments. It can be all sorts of things. Psalm 34, 3, we come to our brothers and sisters, we say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's what you can do over a coffee or something, sitting down with another believer and having real fellowship, not just where you're hanging out together, but where you're communing in the things of the Lord. Even our weekly worship services, I want you to think about this. What are our worship services? Worship services are a time that God has appointed for us to learn from each other and to speak to each other about the surpassing excellence of Christ. In a formal way, we do it as those gathered out to him. One of the tasks of the preacher is to tell you the surpassing excellencies of Christ, of his saving work, of his calling, of his person, of his law. We gather also to sing psalms, declaring to one another his excellence in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making grace melody in our heart to the Lord, showing each other his worth. We unite in ardent prayer, asking him to show us his glory, to manifest himself to us and his work to us. We set forth the bread and the wine and the sacrament, declaring what Christ has done for our salvation. We will do well to learn then to see the beauty of the bride of Christ and of her devotion to him. And then seeing the beauty in her to ask her the question, what is your beloved more than any other beloved? And next week, Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity to look at how she answers that question. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Gracious and merciful Father, we praise you and thank you that that you have called us together to be the bride of Christ. You called us together as the bride of Christ, those that you have redeemed. Truly, Father, you gave a people to your Son to be his holy bride. And he came from heaven, and he redeemed her. He purchased her with his own blood. And now he is gathering all of the members that make her up, the ones that you have given him. And he says that not one of them will perish, that he will gather every single one of them into the fold. We thank you, Lord, for the hope and the encouragement that that gives us, that we shall be a complete bride, 
made up of all those that you have redeemed. Some of them from very harsh backgrounds, very, very deep sin and heavy sin. Others that are, grew up in, in, a, in a godly environment for generations. And Father, you gather all of them as one. And they mutually are able to, the members are able to encourage one another and to bless one another and to point each other to our Savior, to talk of Him and of His excellence and of the excellence of serving Him and the excellence of His ways. We pray, O Lord, that You would help us to to point each other to Christ and to speak of Him as the fairest of 10,000. We pray that we would have an eye to see the beauty of the church and that when we see beauty, that that it would draw us, that it would attract us, that we wouldn't go away and feel intimidated, but we would be drawn to say, tell us about this, show us the way. We thank you, Lord, that even when we come to church, that that's really what we're doing. We're coming in and looking to, to, to hear and to learn of Christ in all the means that you have appointed for us. We pray, Lord, that you would make our, our church services that which transforms us and that which draws us to Christ. We pray, Father, that you would work powerfully in us. Oh, Father, we're too alienated from him and and you have brought us near. So we pray, Lord, that we we would truly come near and that we would find Christ in the assembly, that we would find him in the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the prayers, that we would find him at the Lord's table. We pray, oh, Lord, that as you promised, Lord Jesus, that you would manifest yourself to us when we come to you, when we look to you. Oh, Father, please help us too in our daily walk, in our family and in our, um, with our children as we have family worship each day. We pray that we would be able to set forth the, the beauties of Christ and reading your word and speaking of him with our children and with one another. And Father, help us in our own personal time too when we pray and when we read that, that we would have a rich fellowship with Christ, and then we would go out beautiful for you, O Lord, and that people would see our love for you. They would know that we have been with Jesus, that they would understand and see the blessing that we have had in your courts. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done for us. We pray now that you would bless us as we move to uh, welcoming these new members and then to the Lord's table after that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen blessing of the Lord our God. May God make you worthy of his calling, and may he fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.